I get to be stuffy and behind a big wooden thing. Hi, my name's Andy. Um, <clears throat> I've gotten the joy of meeting some of you, but um, I'm a part of Auckland DV's morning church with my wife and two kids. Uh, I also work with the navigators at Auckland Uni, one of the ministries here on campus. And um, so it's my joy to interact with students around the Bible, the scriptures, and the person of Jesus uh, on a daily basis. Um, <clears throat> But I count it a joy uh, and a privilege to get to be with you this evening. I love when I get to come to to bring the word and to humbly sit under the word and then bring it before you. Um, And today, we have this fantastic task ahead of us of talking about the tabernacle. Uh, One of you recounted to me beforehand, um, I read that and I got nothing. Um, So I'm looking forward to that. Um, I view this as a daunting task. Um, I view this as a daunting task, firstly, because the passages we're attempting to cover are Exodus 25 through 31 and Exodus 35 through 40. So 13 chapters, uh, over a fourth, almost a third of the entire book in, in one, uh, one go. So feels daunting to me, but our goal is simple. Our goal is to understand uh, the themes and, and the overtones of the tabernacle what's actually in the text, not its, not its minute details, because if you do read 25 to 31 and 35 through 40, it sounds a lot more like an architecture class than a passage of Scripture. It's a drawing, and actually, if you're struggling, uh, it would be great to draw it. But what we're looking at today is this theme of the presence of God and what that means for us, and what that means for us in the light of the rest of the Bible. So that's where we're headed My encouragement, however, because I'm skipping quite a few things, would be uh, go to the Connect Group study on this one. Join the Connect Group, uh, do this study, read the passage for yourself, and see what it has. It's rich. The second reason this is a a daunting task, this theme of the presence of God, um, is that this theme is incredibly important for understanding who God is, what he's done, and how that applies to us. The giving of the tabernacle is a tremendous step forward in the history of God's people. It's a movement um, forward in the progress of redemption, and it's significant. As in, what I'm saying is if you don't understand the tabernacle and you don't understand its significance, your understanding of the gospel and what Jesus did will be diminished. It won't be as fully formed or understood. So this is intensely daunting. And moving closer, um, I don't know how you guys do uh, with really detailed projects, but I think it's a daunting task for the people of Israel. Hey, here's here's 13 chapters of instructions that you better do, and you better do perfectly, enough to make procrastinators run for the hill, because what we'll see is that quite literally, their lives hang on the balance of how they do this. If they don't do this right, if they don't enter the tabernacle right, those who get to, They die. Exodus 40, verse 1. What we'll do this morning is we're going to roughly look at Exodus chapter 40. It functions as a pretty good summary of the whole section, and I'll bring in a few things along the way. Exodus 40, verse 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. See, we're stepping into this section in the midst of something extraordinary. Um, in the midst of something pretty much unprecedented, a meeting with God. 
all throughout Genesis and Exodus up to this point, we've seen God appear to people. We've seen it happen um, five, six, I don't know, up to ten occasions. But every time what happens is uh, the person pretty much falls to the fa- their face to the floor and they say, don't kill me, don't destroy me. And then when they make it out in the end, they express something like, holy cow, I can't believe I made it out alive. But what has happened here is that Moses and the leaders of Israel have been invited onto the mountain of God. Um, When Rowan taught on Exodus 19 through 24, um, he talked about uh, basically, don't touch the mountain or you die. Any animal that touches the mountain while the presence of God is on it dies. It's a scary thing. But Moses and the leaders are invited to step onto this mountain to offer a sacrifice, to cleanse themselves, and to, and to engage with God. They eat a meal, they drink with him. This is Exodus 24. And they get to even kind of see his feet. To see his feet. And then Moses is invited further up onto the mountain. And after sitting for seven days in the midst of the cloud, the Lord speaks to Moses for 40 days and 40 nights. Absolutely amazing to stand in the presence of God. But let's think how scary this would be. Don't touch the mountain or you die. Oh, yeah, hey, uh, come, come on up the mountain. Yeah. Offer sacrifice and come to me. Oh, and Moses, come up even closer. And then you're waiting for, for seven days. What's going to happen? Do I get to actually be here? And what we're looking at in the giving of the tabernacle is what happens in Moses' meeting with God, this fearful and awesome and wonderful thing to dwell in the presence of God. Uh, Chapter 25, should be on the slide, says it in this way. um, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. Uh, Sorry, that's verse 2. And let them make me a sanctuary, is Exodus 25, that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. God's basically saying, make me a tent. Make me a place that I may dwell with you. See, Moses doesn't just get to step onto a mountain and then come back with the story of, I lived. I spoke with God. He gets to come back with the plans for a tent, a place where God says, I will dwell with you in the midst of your people. A couple things we have to see here. God is initiating this. Moses didn't walk up and say, so, um, yeah, we're kind of afraid of going it alone. Uh, and we bought a tent from Kathmandu. It's pretty big, but uh, seems nice. And, and God, we'd love it if, um, if you'd come dwell with us. No, no. What we're seeing is God is saying, I will be with you. I want to be with you. Here's how you can make that happen. Here's what needs to happen. The elders have just sworn into this covenant relationship. They've made a a bond, an oath with God, a binding relationship through sacrifice where they've made promises to God, we will follow you, and God has made promises to them. The basis of the promise God makes is, I will be your God and you will be my people. Something amazing and unique. And by the way, that's the theme of the entire Bible. Fantastic. Secondly, we have to see, um, God says, make it after the pattern I show you. We have to see that somehow Moses is seeing this tabernacle. 
The text isn't specific as to exactly how he sees it, but on four occasions over three chapters, 25, 26, and 27, Moses has said, make this how you saw it, or according to the pattern I showed you. So what's being given here isn't some fresh idea that God's just saying, yeah, yeah, whatever, make a tent. Moses is being given a divine reality, a heavenly tabernacle, to model this tent after. It's something amazing, something otherworldly that God's giving. Let's, let's look at the description. Exodus 43 through 8 should be on the screen. And you shall put in it, this tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony. And you shall screen the ark with the veil and bring in the table and arrange it. Bring in the lampstand, set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony. Set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. Set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tent of meeting and place the wash basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it, don't forget. And you shall set up the court all around this, this gate and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. I want to paint a, a brief picture of this, but if you flip to the Connect Group page of your outline, uh, Lachlan has included a fantastic little schematic. Um, I think his, his hope is you're all going to go home and redo your house after this pattern. Uh, I'm kidding. Well, let me paint the picture here, uh, not literally because I'm terrible with art, but I want to give enough detail that we can picture this. The materials used in the construction of this are gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet yarns, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, hides of sea cows, acacia wood, olive oil, spices, onyx stones, and precious gems. All these amazingly specific, incredibly detailed instructions to be built with treasures, essentially. And essentially, as you look at this picture, what you can see is that the most precious, the most ornate, the most valuable items dwell right next to the Ark of the Testimony, which is where God himself will be enthroned. And as you move out, the materials go down. So the outside of the tent is fastened together with copper. The inside of the tent is covered in gold and blue and purple yarns. The outside of the tent is goat's hair and a layer of sea cows and, um, you know, just real good stuff. Sturdy, but not as valuable, hey. And the outer court is merely wood and fine linen, whereas the inner, every wooden frame is dipped in gold, covered in gold. The Ark of the Testimony itself is 75 pounds of gold poured over wood in this structure. There's two patterns we should see here from the text itself. The first comes from the design and order of the tabernacle. This outer court um, is this big rectangle, and it's just indiscreet. Make it with fine linens and wood. But the gate, the gate is something specific. It will be made with blue and purple and scarlet yarns and gold weaved into the pattern of cherubim, which are winged creatures that dwell in the presence of God. Incredibly specific. The door of the gate must always face east. And what would have occurred almost instantly to the mind of the Israelites is the Garden of Eden, this other walled place guarded by an angel, a cherubim on the east. Peter ends, a commentator on Exodus, says the tabernacle is meant to stand as a microcosm of creation itself. It's this incredibly ornate, beautiful, ordered, well-structured thing made from the precious bit, most precious bits of creation where God himself will dwell. 
this garden tent of the Lord. The second pattern we have to see, it comes in the way the text reads, seven times throughout Exodus 25 through 31, where God's giving the instructions, it follows this rhythm, the Lord spoke to Moses, the Lord spoke to Moses, the Lord spoke to Moses, seven times. This is to lodge in our heads that this giving of this creation formula here follows exactly after the pattern of creation. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let us divide the heavens from the earth. And God said, let us make lights. And God said, and God said, seven times. So what should be drilled in our heads as we read this is that just as God embarked and launched the creation of the world, so God is launching this movement forward in redemption. This is something God is doing. God is driving. This is a crucial pattern that signals the purpose and the meaning of the tabernacle. God has brought a microcosm of creation wherein he will dwell with his people and through which his people will embark on this continued mission with him. It's a holy and consecrated place. And that's the theme we'll turn to, holy and consecrated. Verses 9 through 11. Excuse me. Then you shall take anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it, consecrate it and all its furniture, so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering, its utensils, consecrate the altar, so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. See the design of these furnishings, the the pattern shown, this divine pattern shown on the mountain and the most precious bits of creation, gold, silver, bronze, precious stones, all of these things, that in itself is not enough. It's not good enough for God to dwell in. It has to be made holy, set apart, consecrated. So they have to, um, it doesn't get into it in this summary, but they have to cover it in blood and sprinkle blood of sacrifice on it. They have to cover it in these special anointing oils that has a very specific recipe in the text. But let's pause for a minute. Is, is oil really enough to do that? If, if Rowan and Lachlan teamed up and anointed me with oil, would that make me most holy? If he kind of walked up and threw it on this strange wooden thing in front of me, would it make that most holy? Or would it just be sort of like wet and kind of like, you know, hope the janitor isn't like clean that. There's nothing magic about this oil. So what can make it holy enough for the presence of God? God makes another promise. Exodus 29, verses 43 through 46. In talking about the tent of meeting, he says, there I will meet with the people of Israel and it will be sanctified, made holy by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar Aaron also and his sons, I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, God says, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell with them. I am the Lord their God. See, these furnishings of the tabernacle, this tent, it's not just made holy by oils. God chooses to use that, but it's truly made holy by God's presence. God himself will dwell there. Because to be fair, what else could? What else could make something fitting enough for the holiness of God? Don't touch the mountain lest you die, 
Don't mess with what God is doing here. He himself, not this oil, is what makes it holy. We have to remember again and again, these Old Testament passages, we read things about Noah's Ark, we read things about the law, we read things about the tabernacle, and on and on and on. We have to remember God is the one who's doing this. God is the one all through the scriptures that's initiating relationship with people, that's making things fit for him by his own doing. It's a pattern and a picture of the greater redemption to come. Like I said, without understanding this, your understanding of what Christians claim, what Jesus did and professes as true, is diminished. And this should give incredible courage to Moses and the people and incredible courage to us that God himself will step in and meet, make the things meet fit for him. Excuse me. Let's move to Aaron and the priests and their consecration. Exodus 40, 12 to 15. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me. Bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual ongoing priesthood throughout their generations. See, God just didn't give a tent to his people. It wasn't just this thing in the midst of the camp that everybody got to look at and say, yeah, yeah, God dwells there. Yeah, yeah, God gave us that. God also gives people priests, a holy priest. People he's appointing for specific tasks. Chapters 28, 29, and 39 all lay this out in vivid, beautiful, wonderful detail. I want to point out just a couple patterns from above. Uh, just as we mentioned about the tabernacle, as you move away from the presence of God, the material value goes down. It moves from gold to silver to bronze to wood and linen. It does this, this pattern, except, except when you come to the priests. Immediately when you get to these instructions, you're thrust back into a world of gold and purple and blue and precious stones. It's almost as if they're walking tabernacles in themselves. Not that the presence of God dwells uniquely in them, but that they're the ones that step into the actual presence of God on behalf of the people. And they're the ones that then step from the presence of God back into the presence of people. God dwells in the midst of this. And their very dress reminds us of the office and role that they bear. There's two repeated phrases and patterns from the instructions about these clothes. The first phrase is bearing the people. On both of uh, Aaron, the high priest's shoulder plates, he, he gets to wear these onyx stones that are engraved with the names of the tribes of Israel. Across his chest, he gets this 12 precious stones laid out, one standing for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. In his little shirt garment, he's to stick the Urim and the Thummim, these kind of crazy-sounding gems and stones, whatever they are, that Aaron uses to make decisions and judgments for the people. So he's to bear the people in everything that he does. I don't think they used a lot of onyx and precious stones in most of their clothes. Like, you walk on Queen Street and stuff, and you see all these, like, really sparkly outfits. I don't think that's what we're dealing with in the desert. I think everything about this clothes reminds Aaron... I'm bearing the people. I'm bearing their weight and the discomfort it is. I'm bearing their judgment in the midst of it all. He bears their presence. And the second phrase is, lest you die. 
Aaron's life is threatened multiple times in these passages. So that if Aaron doesn't do these clothes the right way, if he doesn't walk into the tabernacle in the right way, he bears guilt and he dies. For instance, he has to wear specific undergarments lest he bears their guilt and dies. And that shall be a perpetual ongoing thing throughout their generations. Everybody has to wear these specific undergarments. He has little bells across the hem of his tunic that are to make a specific sound when he steps into the presence of God and when he leaves. So that he shall not die is the phrase. He wears this uh, turban on his head and then a stone that's engraved with the words, Holy to the Lord. And the text says, this is so that his sacrifices are accepted. Almost like it's this visual reminder to God when Aaron steps into his presence, oh yeah, I decided not to kill this one. I decided to accept and make holy these offerings and sacrifices, lest he die. Lest he die. How often? How often do we just rush into God's presence? Oh God, why are you doing this? Why isn't my life going this way? Oh God, why? And we question the God of the universe. In the Fellowship of the Ring, um, Boromir utters this phrase, and it's been just butchered across the internet in various memes. Um, I'm sure you've seen them. One does not simply walk into Mordor, is the phrase. He's just heard the plan, and he thinks the plan is just utter rubbish. Um, and I was really laughing quite hard last night at all the different memes. One does not simply say, I'm not hungry, to Grandma. One does not simply stop eating chips and salsa. And on and on and on and on. This passage is saying one does not simply walk into the presence of God. One does not simply come however one wants into the presence of God. Lest they die. Lest they die. Yet in we rush. We'll pick up that theme as to why we get to in rush in a little bit. But luckily for the people of God, God laid this out specifically. He entrusted to them these divine reality picture of the tabernacle. He entrusted to them these garments. He anointed and decided, I will consecrate these priests to my service. And he allows them. Aaron gets to walk into the presence of God after making certain sacrifices. So Aaron does simply walk into God's presence, which, just let me be clear, is like the exact opposite of Mordor. I'm not drawing a comparison there at all. Let's continue on in Exodus 40, this theme of Sabbath. I'll read you just an abridged part of this to get the flavor engraved in your head like it's engraved in mine. This Moses did, verse 16, according to everything that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month and the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. He laid its bases, he spread its tents, as the Lord commanded Moses. He took the testimony, put it into the ark, he put the poles on the ark, set the mercy seat above the ark, and he brought the ark into the tabernacle, set up the veil, screened the ark, as the Lord commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting, as the Lord commanded Moses. He put the lampstand, he put the golden altar, he put in place the screen for the door, and he set the altar at the entrance, as the Lord commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and whenever they went into the tent and when they approached the altar, they washed, as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and he set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Hey, believe it or not, I skipped several as the Lord commanded Moses from this passage. 
not totally, but almost every ellipsis on that screen is an as the Lord commanded Moses. The intentional repetition here is to engrave in the minds of the Israelites that this tabernacle they're looking at is exactly built to code. They could look and say, you see that cord? That's exactly what God told Moses to do. And he did it. Do you see that altar? Yeah, that's it. On and on. They were to be able to see from this precise detail what we're worshiping in is exactly what Moses was given from the Lord. And it ends with this phrase, so Moses finished the work. So Moses finished the work. This this language, as pointed out by the, the ends commentary that Rowan lent me, um, exactly mirrors the language of creation. In Genesis 2.2, it says, So on the seventh day, God finished his work. And the Hebrew is identical, other than the phrase on the seventh day, when it says, So Moses finished the work. Just as God finished creation and on the seventh day rested, so Moses, after doing exactly he was commanded, finished his work and rested. He ceased from working. We skipped over two passages here. Well, we skipped a lot of passages, but two specific passages, one in Exodus 31 and one in 35, um, that, that reissue the command to observe the Sabbath, to take a holy day, one out of every seven, and rest from your work and spend that in a different way. See, this rhythm from creation, resting, that God puts in place when he finished his work, he extends into this movement of redemption, ceasing from work every seven days. And the point here that comes forward is that this tabernacle is a holy place. It's a microcosm of creation itself. And in the midst of that holy space, holy time has to be observed. The rest is to be maintained. And fully, I think, this picture that we see here in the Sabbath and in resting in, in just instills in us that the tabernacle and the people of God who encamp around it are to be a bit of heaven on earth. They're to show the rest of the world what it means to have God dwelling in their midst, to be his people. And that's the whole point. Let me finish Exodus chapter 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. Ah, it happened. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled it. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the people of Israel set out. But if it wasn't taken up, then they did not set out until it was taken up. Okay, I get it, yeah. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, inside of all the house of Israel, throughout all their journeys. Guys, this has all been brought together by God. This isn't Moses' idea to capture or encapsulate God or lure him into some place that he's created. This is divinely inspired, divinely planned, divinely consecrated, divinely completed. And in the end, God dwells there. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. But seriously, apart from the giving and the filling of the tabernacle, the Exodus rescue would be lacking. I mean, to have passed through the Red Sea on dry land, to have seen the plagues and been brought out of Egypt, unbelievable, amazing. But apart from 
then getting this presence of God in your midst, it's almost, almost nothing. The people might have been right without this indwelling presence of God. Throughout um, Exodus and ongoing, the people complain, Moses, ugh, did you bring us out here to die? Did you bring us out here to starve? We're thirsty. That water's no good. On and on. Moses, who are you to lead us? Aaron, who are you to exalt yourself as God's high priest? On and on their complaints go. So just to be freed from slavery into the desert is pretty much nothing. But to be freed from slavery and then brought to where God dwells in your midst, now that, that is something. The tabernacle was to be the center of gravity, the center of mass for God's people, around which their hearts, their lives, their weekly schedules, and their community literally camped and dwelt and based their lives upon. (laughs) So what does this mean for us? Do I think we need to build this new tent? (laughs) No. Thankfully, as we walk through the rest of the Bible, this theme of the tabernacle is picked up and improved upon and developed its progressive revelation throughout the rest of the Bible. John chapter 1, verse 14. We're greeted in John 1, 1 with this creature, or this, this uh, not creature, that's not what I meant, character. That's my word. And the word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. On and on about this word character. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Obviously talking about Jesus. We've seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father. Full of grace. Full of truth. The word became flesh. And dwelt among us. This Greek word here is the the Greek word used throughout the, the translation. The Greek translation of the Old Testament. For tabernacle. So literally it probably should read. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Fully God fully man on earth. He brought the actual full presence of God to earth in a way that was visible, in a way that was tangible, touchable, and in a way that was earth-shakingly felt and remains to be earth-shakingly felt today, over 2,000 years later. Jesus is the pattern shown on the mountain. Jesus is this tabernacle where the, the presence of God dwells. And encounters people. Jesus is the original pattern. So the tabernacle reflects Jesus, Hebrews says, not the other way around. Jesus is the focus. He's always been the focus, the true God dwelling among people. Jesus is the true and better tabernacle, one who walked and brought heaven to earth. Jesus not only is the true and better tabernacle, he's the true and better high priest. One who needs no outside sacrifice. Before Aaron was consecrated, he had to do seven days of sacrifices and anointings where they put blood on his right ear, his right thumb, and his right toe, oil on his head, on and on and on. And every time Aaron then entered the presence of God, he first made an offering for himself. And then he carried in whatever offering the people had given him. Jesus needs no outside sacrifice. Jesus needs no bells on his tunic lest he die or 
engraved stone so that his offering is accepted. Hebrews seven twenty six through 28 reiterates this point. In talking about Jesus, the author says it's indeed fitting that we should get such a high priest, one who's holy, one who's innocent, one who's unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like these other priests, Aaron, to offer sacrifices daily, first for himself and then for the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up his own self. For the law appoints men, Aaron and his perpetual priesthood, in their weakness. But the word of the promise, the word of the gospel, says oath, which came later than the law, appointed a son who's been made perfect forever. Jesus becomes this center of gravity that the tabernacle was. He becomes this beautiful high priest that mediates the presence of God to us. He's true and he's better. Jesus is the better mediator of a covenant. See, the understanding of the tabernacle takes even further significance when we see that the promise of God, what's on offer for those who believe in Jesus, is nothing short of God's presence itself. Jesus proclaims, I will put my spirit within you, all who have faith. Such that the church, the people of God, those who have faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, become the tabernacle. And so that's how the church is referred to throughout the New Testament. See, Jesus isn't one merely who comes and goes occasionally from God's presence, who gets special invites and then sees the, the feet or something like the feet. Jesus is fully God himself and knows God face to face. And he brings a better promise. Jesus basically says, because of my sacrifice, you can simply walk into the presence of God by faith. So that it's no longer lest you die. By faith in Christ, it's all changed. But just as we've seen God accomplish this establishment of heaven on earth in the tabernacle, so we see God accomplishing it all fully through Jesus. While Rocking through the Red Sea is amazing to be freed from slavery. And while the tabernacle is something so much greater to have the, the presence of God dwelling in your midst that you can come to through a high priest and sacrifice, how much greater for Jesus to bring the presence of God to you through his own blood and his own anointing by faith. This is what's on offer. Now let me, let me just point out, If you're here today investigating the claims of Christianity, investigating who Jesus is and what he's like, investigating what the Bible actually says and whether it means anything here in Auckland 2016, is this the Jesus you were looking for? This Jesus that you've seen this this afternoon, this evening, is this who you expected to find? And the bigger question is, what will you do? What will you do with this God-man who dwelt among the people who poured out on the altar of sacrifice his own blood to take away the sin of the world and the wrath of God. What will you do with this high priest who's passed through the heavens and welcomes you graciously into God's presence by faith? 
Because what's on offer in Christianity, what's on offer in the gospel, what's on offer with Jesus isn't, hey, um, you probably need some moral help. You probably need like a crutch in life because I think you might be kind of weak. What's on offer isn't, um, oh, here's kind of a warm, fuzzy feeling and a good thing. What's on offer is the presence of God. God dwelling in the midst of the people through his own shed blood for us. Don't walk away from that. Think long and hard on what that means. Secondly, if you're here today expressing faith in Jesus, man, what is there in this picture that draws you in to deeper worship, to more set-apart obedience? When, when Exodus 40 ends, it ends with this phrase, throughout all their journeys... Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. If the cloud wasn't taken up, then they wouldn't set out. But if it was taken up, then they'd set out. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. (laughs) Could it be said of you, wherever the Spirit of God within them led, and moved. So they went. But if, but if it didn't move them, then they didn't go. But when it moved them, they, they went. Could that be said? Everybody around could look and see the tabernacle. Does the world around look and see? Wow, I think, I think there's something unique going on here. Better yet to those closest to you, your flatmates, those people you work with on group projects, uh, on, on just unreal hours. Do they see that? 1 Corinthians 6.19, this one's not on the board. It says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Do you not know, Christian, that God himself dwells within? You are not your own. We were bought with a price. The price of the blood of the Son. So glorify God in your body. I trust that God is bringing specific things to mind for each of you. I hope so. Because the implications of this are almost endless. Do you not know? God's Spirit desires to move you where He wants to move you, to transform you into the likeness of the Son. And what will you do with this Jesus, the tabernacle?